He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from death, that is everything he might, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Good morning. So I know this might be hard to believe, but this week I made a mistake, a a tactical error. Uh, It turns out that a good day to run errands is not the day after Thanksgiving, (laughs) particularly if one of those errands takes place at North Park Mall. I, I sensed the scope of my mistake when I got into striking range of the mall and the traffic just started increasing and increasing. And then I saw the parking lot, and it was like a reverse rapture. All, all the peoples had arrived to park in those places. So I made a genius decision. I, I dropped Anya off at the door to get in line, and I was going to park the car at the top of the parking garage because no one is going to be parking at the top of the parking garage. I was correct. There were so many parking spaces up there. I parked the car rather quickly, got out of the car. By the time I got to Anya, she was at the head of the line. We got in, we took care of the errand, we left. We were in the mall for no more than 10 minutes. Anya slightly longer. I was very proud of myself for accomplishing this on Black Friday of all days. And then we make our way back to the car. And all the people in the mall had decided at that point either to leave or to find parking spaces by going up and down the exit area of that. We were in the parking garage trying to leave for 35 minutes. And then it took another 10 to 15 minutes to get out of the mall complex altogether. So all the time that we gained was lost. And I saw something fascinating, just a study in human nature. All these people were there for various purposes. And as I was slowly making my way down to exit the parking garage, an average of 12 minutes per floor, I got to see people's relationships with their parking spaces. And they think that there might be a parking space, and I suddenly see the passions of their hearts inflamed because they have found the one thing in life worth living for. And it's that parking space. And I'm being a little hyperbolic, but I saw road rage like I have not seen before because a person turned right into a parking space when somebody else was ready to turn left in a parking space. And I'm just waiting in line as an innocent bystander trying to avoid all of the conflict going on around me. But you could see 
people's idols on display. Their, their selfishness comes to the front. And, and going through the mall and looking at the lines for almost every single store, there's nothing wrong with shopping. There's nothing wrong with, with desiring to have something nice or to go shopping for others. But greed and priorities were just on display. And, and we live in a world where it is so easy for our priorities to be hijacked, where politics becomes more important than people, where entertainment becomes more important than, than intimacy, where Christ becomes less important than consumerism, where self becomes more important than the Savior. This week, we are closing out our study on the book of Colossians. And this week is not going to be a, a normal sermon. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different. I don't have a particular text that I'm preaching. What I want to do is now that we've walked all the way through the entire book of Colossians, I want to bring it all together into one cohesive piece. I want to look at the overarching theology of the book of Colossians. And as we're doing that, I think we're going to see an answer to the dilemma that I observed on Black Friday, that day when greed and self and consumerism replaces Christ. The book of Colossians has a message for us. It's interesting that this time of year, the time of year where we celebrate the Incarnation, where we celebrate the birth of our Savior, next week begins the first week in Advent as we prepare our hearts and our minds for the beauty of Christmas, that we lose sight of our Savior because of stuff. And I know everybody in this room is an exception to that. But isn't it so easy for the Christmas list to become more important than the Christmas Savior? None of us would ever say that that's true. But what occupies our minds and the way that we live and prioritize our lives just bring that selfishness to the front in a way that I... I'm uncomfortable when I have the self-awareness to notice it in myself. And, oh, something is not right here. Well, Paul, in writing his letter to the Colossians, he starts off with some pretty encouraging words. Re remember, Paul did not plant the church in Colossae. It was planted by someone else. He had never been there, but he had heard good things. And in chapter 1 of the book of Colossians, he is listing, hey, Hey, you, hey, you Colossians, I've heard these things about you, your faith in Christ Jesus. I, I've seen uh, examples of the love that you have for one another, you know, how you live in light of the hope that's laid up for you. you. You live out the gospel which has come to you, and that gospel that has come to you, it's, it's bearing fruit and it's increasing. Your love in the Spirit is evident I got to think, if I'm somebody who lives in Colossae and the Apostle Paul is writing a letter and he's saying these things, I'm feeling pretty good. Like, yeah, yeah, thanks, Paul. Good on you. you you've, you've heard rightly about who we are. And then the Apostle Paul pulls a Columbo. You all remember Columbo from the, the murder mysteries, right? He says all of these beautiful things and then it's as if he's leaving the letter and he goes, one more thing. Just one more thing. I'm saying this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Okay, so there's a risk. There's something going on in Colossae where, where somebody is threatening them with delusions. They, they might be being deceived by someone. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. So we, we have that, that, those pronouns again. I say this in order that no one may delude you. See to it that no one takes you captive. So there's someone who's deluding and spreading some sort of dangerous philosophy. Let no one pass judgment on you. These are a shadow of the things to come. So who's this no one? Are, are you starting to see that there is a, a person behind this? See to it that no one, no one, no one. There must be someone. What is the occasion for Paul to write this letter? It's not to pat them on the back because they're living such good lives. It's to pastor them. It's to shepherd them. It's to protect them from the someone that is putting them at risk of these things. Let no one disqualify you. Something is going on. As Hamlet said, there's something rotten in the state of Colossae. All is not as it should be. Now, this image here, it's probably hard to make out because there is so much going on, but this is in a church, Santa Maria Tonsadzita, in just south of Puebla, Mexico. And it's a Roman Catholic church that has embraced syncretism. What is syncretism? It's a church that has embraced all of the different myths and legends and religions that already existed in this community and incorporated it into their worship so it would feel familiar. So if I took the time to blow up this image from this church, the entire church, from stem to stern, from ceiling to floor, is covered with statuary. And there's Thor, and there's Odin, and there's Zeus, and there's Hermes. It's not just one mythology, it's all of these mythologies. And then the mythologies of the Mayan and the Aztec religions are also incorporated into the walls along with the saints of the Christian faith and Mary, mother of Christ, and Jesus himself. They're all shuffled onto the wall. Uh, what we see in Colossae is not that different than what's happening right now. There's pagan philosophies. Chapter 2, verse 4, I say this, that no one should delude you with persuasive arguments. Keep looking out, lest there shall be someone who takes you hostage through these empty, deceptive philosophies in accord with the tradition of men, in accord with the rudiments of the world, and not in accord with Christ. Just as that wall in this church is overcome with false religions mixed in with the truth, so these pagan philosophies are being shuffled into what is true. Then Jewish legalism, you, you heard it on the last slide there. Therefore, stop letting someone judge you in eating and drinking and respect, in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. This idea that if you don't check all of the boxes exactly right, you can't be a good Christian. You need to observe all of these Jewish feasts, not just in that way, but in this very particular way. And we stand in judgment of you if that's not happening. Then there's this Jewish mysticism. As we keep reading in chapter 2, stop letting anyone rule you out, delighting in humiliation and worship of the angels. So there's this idea that the angels were the ones who created. There's this idea that the angels are orchestrating every aspect of life. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, don't, don't let the worship of angels enter into your thought. 
And then this false teacher, this someone who's on the other side of the no one, going into detail about things he has experienced, being inflated without cause by the mind of his flesh and not holding fast to the head. So we have this idea of a secret knowledge that this teacher has. This this teacher has had these experiences that you haven't had. And if you want to be as good as this teacher, if you want to be as spiritual and as enlightened as this teacher, then you should desire to have the same kinds of mystical experiences that he's experienced. So I'm I'm calling that proto-Gnosticism because Gnosticism didn't exist yet. What the heck is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is this idea. Gnosis is a Greek word which means knowledge. And Gnosticism is the idea of, okay, you have found Christ. Good for you. That's good. That's the first step. Now, come with me. I want to share with you a secret knowledge. And this secret knowledge about the origins of the universe is going to enable you to be like Christ because you will be able to transcend this physical form and become truly a spiritual form. That's this idea very briefly of what Gnosticism is. It's not fair Uh, I'd like to talk about 35 minutes about what Gnosticism is, but I'm not going to do that. But essentially, it's a secret knowledge. What you have in Christ is not enough. There's more. All of this leads to syncretism, the, the shuffling in of things that are not of Christ into a religious system. Just like that cathedral wall and ceiling covered with all of these other things. It's dangerous. And it's very easy for us to fall for the trap of other competing teachings coming alongside Christianity to where it's not just coming alongside Christianity, it's becoming a part of Christianity. So a question that we should be asking ourselves, this letter was written to a first century audience, but where is the danger today? Where is the danger of things that we believe, things that we have affection for, things that we desire to start shuffling into our faith and becoming a part of our Christian identity when really they have nothing to do with Christ. We need to be on guard. Now, there's a lesson for us to to learn from Paul in the way that he deals with these Colossians. How does he go up against this false teacher? How does he deal with them? You know, there's a question as to what really was going on in Colossians. It was, it was one of these things that we mentioned, if not a combination of them. Uh, one author says this, one thing is certain as to the Colossian heresy. It was a doctrine of God and of salvation that cast a cloud over the glory of Jesus Christ. Essentially, Jesus is not enough. You need to obey these rules. Jesus is not enough. You need to have this spiritual experience. Jesus is not enough. The angels are orchestrating everything. Jesus is put behind a cloud instead of elevated to the place of supremacy where he belongs. So, a couple of theories. This is either a letter that Paul is writing to to argue against legalistic Judaism, the one that says you must obey these rules in order to be a good Christian, or a warning against this false teacher. I I, I lean towards the false teacher because of the, the no one the no one. Over and over again, he's warning us about this someone who might be teaching these things and is talking about their false experiences. And why is it important for us to understand the background of the book of Colossians? 
because it gives us insight to today. If you remember that very first sermon from this series, uh, we talked about how the city of Colossae was there in the Euphrates Valley, and it used to be a, a main thoroughfare where people and business and everything would cut through it. But then, because of the building of the, Roman, the, the roads from Rome, it was no longer in the main thoroughfare, and it became a ghost town. It was a, an insignificant town that once had great import, but the people who lived there were deeply shaped by Greek and Roman philosophies and ideas. And so these brand new Christians are coming from worldviews where there are all sorts of competing ideas of truth and competing ideas of what's right. Does this sound familiar at all? We live in a place where there are so many competing, competing ideas of what is right and good and true and beautiful. We, we live in an environment very similar to that of the Colossians. So, taking a look at this false teaching just a little bit more, and then I want to dive into the theology of Colossians. If we're going to take this legalism, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. If we're going to take this this raw practice of the faith, denying ourselves of, of anything that God has given us that is good. Let no one, insisting on asceticism, submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All about the rules. If we start worshiping angels, if we start following a charismatic leader rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a formula. These four things give us a formula that lead to a diminished Christ. A Christ that's not enough. And if you hear anything this morning about this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians and the message that's there for us today is Christ is not to be diminished. There should never be anything that supersedes him in our affections, in our life, in our thinking. And this seems extreme. It's as though I'm telling you that as you go throughout the day, that Jesus should be foremost in your thoughts. As you go throughout your workday, there should be nothing receiving greater priority or glory than Christ. That seems unrealistic. But that's also what we're called to. Nothing, nothing deserves to be in a place of priority over Him. He is the one who is truly God, who has revealed the Father to us. He is fully God. This is the foundation of the argument of the book of Colossians. He is the one who is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who is the Father. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ is described as seated at the right hand of God, and believers are hidden with Christ in God. Do you hear all these descriptions that are placing Jesus as God? For in him all things were created. All things were created through him and in him and for him. When we look at the Bible, when we look at the Hebrew Bible, we see that God is the one who is described as the creator. I have several verses there. I'm not going to read them all to us right now. But what you'll see if you do a survey of the Hebrew scriptures, the one who is created is not an angel. The one who created is not somebody that God delegated. The one who created is fully God. And in this book, Christ is identified as the agent of creation. He has created. And if he has created, that is a way of saying he is fully God. This identifies him clearly with God the Father. And beyond that, 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent. Nothing higher than. And then we get this language at the end of chapter 1 that we are transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And we see that when we recognize that Jesus is fully God. The kingdom of his beloved son is parallel to the kingdom of God. If we are living rightly in the kingdom of God, we are living in the kingdom of the son. Because the son is fully God. And then, in Colossians 1.19, we have this clear statement. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So this foundation that Paul lays at the beginning of his letter, Christ is fully God. Fully. There is no shade of not God in him. He is fully God. That's where it starts. That's where we need to start. And once he's established that in chapter 1, he then builds on it. And he talks about the victory of Christ through his death and his resurrection. One thing that we see, that first creation, if Jesus is the creator, if the Son is the agent of creation, we see his power there. But now we see power revealed in chapter 1, verse 20, through the blood of his cross. He is the one who is the victor. He took that which belonged to the world, the sin, and on the cross, He dealt with it, and he demonstrated his victory over it. And often when we share the gospel and we think about Good Friday, the story ends with Jesus died for my sins on the cross, period. Well, if that's where the story ended, there's no hope. He died for our sins on the cross, but then what did he do? He demonstrated his victory over sin. He demonstrated his victory over death by resurrecting. And then Paul goes on to talk to us about the lordship of Christ. He is Lord. All right, so what is he the Lord over? If if he is preeminent, what is he not the Lord over? There is no category. He is the Lord over all things. And Paul builds this case, and he starts with creation. He is the agent and the goal of creation. That the need for a new creation comes because the one who created, he created everything good. And then because of the fall of humanity, because of sin, creation has become frustrated. And the thorns come up from the earth, and the earth itself groans, waiting for the day when it will be remade, recreated. That's part of the redemptive work of Christ. And he is Lord over all creation. Uh, He's also the Lord over the church. Paul makes it very clear that Jesus is the head of the church. He has final authority over her. I'm not the final authority over Trinity Fellowship Church. The elders are not the final authority over Trinity Fellowship Church. Jesus is the head of his church. Unity in him, walking together in him, living according to the image of our creator. That's what we're called to do and be as part of the church. He is the Lord of the church. But it doesn't stop there. If you remember the sermon that Mike Stroh preached about households, women submit, husbands love, slaves obey, masters do not frustrate. There is not a relationship that we have in your family, in your work life, in your friendships. There is not a relationship that you possess 
that he is not Lord over. So that leads me to ask the convicting question for myself anyway. Do I live my life in relationship with others as though Jesus was the one who is over that relationship? Are my friendships characterized by a submission to Jesus as my Lord? Or is it selfish? Is it manipulative? Is it just for, a, just for fun with no thought of what this relationship could and should be if I'm submitting it properly to the one who is Lord over all of our relationships? And so we keep going from the big creation to the less to the church to the smaller, to the household, to the smallest, each and every single one of us. He is the Lord over us. Paul uses the language of slavery to describe us to be slaves of Christ. In chapter 3, verses 5 and following, listen to this. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry, Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. Because of these, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. Do you hear that? You once walked in these things. But now, put away all of the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And since you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self... You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. The old has gone, the new has come. And we are being, did you hear that? Renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. If this false teacher were talking about some secret knowledge, Paul is saying, there is no secret to the knowledge. The knowledge that you're growing in is the knowledge of who you are in Christ. You aren't what you do, you aren't what you have. You aren't what you buy. You are who you are in Christ. That's who you are for those who know him and are called according to his purposes. He is the Lord over all of these things. And then he talks to us about, all right, so what? What is our response? What is our response to his lordship? Well, this first response is what we're doing right here this morning. We worship. We are called to live a life of worship, Paul tells us in Colossians. We are to flee from idolatry and turn our hearts towards Christ and to worship him. The question that we need to ask is, are we going to worship the creator or are we going to worship created things? Over and over again, we see the created things that people are led to worship in error, that deceitful philosophy those human traditions, those things that are not performed by human hands. These are all things that Paul said that we are to flee from, and rather we are to worship. David Powell describes worship this way, a reorientation of one's actions and being in response to God's redemptive act through Christ. Actions and being, everything we do and everything we are, should be defined by a life of worship to the one who has created us, who has given us life, and has redeemed us from our sin. And after worship, he goes on to talk about thanksgiving. He begins his book with a thanksgiving prayer, and then he closes his book with this admonishment. Oh, this is more on worship. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now the thanksgiving, and be thankful. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. What would your life look like if it was characterized not by impatience, not by frustration, not by selfishness, but to be characterized by thanksgiving? What if my reaction at the mall, instead of extreme frustration at being in that line forever trying to escape, was instead thankfulness? Thankfulness that I got a parking space in the first place. Thankfulness that I'm able to provide for my family and I'm able to run errands because God has, has blessed me richly and abundantly. Thankfulness that I got to that place safely. Thankfulness that nobody backed out of their space and hit me as I was trying to leave. What would it look like if we lived our lives characterized by thanksgiving? That's what Paul is calling us to, worship and thanksgiving. And then he talks about how this lordship is mediated to us. I'm going to close with these ideas. The gospel. We have received the gospel And when we look at Romans, we see how the gospel is described. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. As as an active agent of God, the Holy Spirit brings the gospel to us. In Colossians 1, 6, Paul says, The gospel has come to you just as in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. Paul is a servant of the gospel, and we are called to be the same. Are we servants of the gospel? Then he talks about apostles. Now, we don't have the ministry of apostle present today in the same way that it existed in the first century. Peter, Paul, James, the apostles spread the message of the church. So we may not have those apostles today, but the Holy Spirit has preserved for us their message for the church in the first century, which is a message for the church in the 21st century. So we can still listen to and see how the lordship of Christ is mediated to us through the teaching that we have in the scriptures. And then finally, believers. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, gives a pretty clear description of what we're to do. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open a door to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Act wisely towards outsiders. Friends, we are called to be mediators of the power of the gospel. We are called to live out the confession that we just shared this morning together in word and deed throughout the entire week. We're called to walk in wisdom and to have our speech always full of grace. How often do we let an opportunity to share the goodness of God pass us by because we are fearful or embarrassed or worried about what it might do to the relationship? If we're living lives characterized by worship and thanksgiving, 
and we wear our hearts on our sleeves and we're being honest with those around us about what we're thankful for and who we're thankful to. That would just be a simple way for us to bear witness. Be a people of thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Lord in all things. People will see this and they'll notice. Particularly when we are in a season and in a place where the right thing seems to be to gripe and to grumble and complain. And instead, we're thankful for the blessings that are there in that moment. We're called to be mediators of this. And then finally, the final consumption of lordship. This is our hope. Christ is the hope of glory, Paul calls him in Colossians. This is important because glory is what they used in the Hebrew Scriptures to describe that which reveals Israel to the world. Christ is the hope of glory in that he is the one who reveals God to the world. He is both the instrument and the content of the glory. This book is about Jesus Christ. This book is about our response to him. This book is about the centrality of the death and the resurrection and the final revelation of Christ. That holds this whole book together. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that supplants him. There is nothing else that's greater than him. And that's easy for me to say up here as a preacher. But I want to suggest that you look at this argument that Paul has built through this letter. Each one of these planks of the argument merits one to two sermons, which is kind of what we've done over the past several weeks. My goal this morning was for us to look at the whole book and see what Paul is doing. Jesus Christ is fully God. He has defeated death and sin and has, rose again and has risen and he is alive and with us even now. And he is the Lord over the church. He's the Lord over all creation. He's the Lord over our relationships. And he is the Lord of our lives. And we're called to respond with worship and thanksgiving. Live in light of the gospel and look forward to his coming. I pray that each of us would live lives that line up with the theology of the book of Colossians. It's a big ask, but at the same time, it's the only right thing to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. What you have given us in the word, how you have saved us from our selfishness and our sin. As we close our study on the book of Colossians, I pray that we would not close our hearts to the message of Colossians. May we be men and women who recognize that Jesus is enough. More than being enough, he is the Lord over all. May we live our lives in light of that truth. Help us to be people of worship and thanksgiving who bear witness to the gospel by loving those around us, speaking gracefully, and worshiping you with everything we say and everything we do. We pray this in the name of the one who created all things, the one who is restoring all things, and the one who is coming again. We pray he would come again soon. Amen.